prayer. Your relationship with prayer reveals what you are. To, to some degree, your prayer life can tell you what your destiny will be like in this life and the next. And your relationship with prayer, it determines your impact on this world and the world around you and on your house and everything that surrounds you more than you know. And just approaching God, for prayer reveals something about you. And what I mean by that is this. When guilt plagues you and when shame buries you, do you run to God or do you run from God? I mean, like, I'm talking about, like, right after you sin, where do you go? It would make sense to avoid God, the infinitely wise and powerful God, if you wanted to stay in control of your life. Because as soon as you come into his presence, I mean, he's powerful and he's wise. And that means you either have to do everything he tells you to do or you have to openly disobey him. And not only that. Like, what's he going to do about the things that are causing you shame? I mean, that is the real big question we're asking. What's he going to do with my shame? And we probably, because of that, avoid him more than we think. We're in our series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within. And this is going all the way back to, to the end of Luke. Luke is the writer of Acts. And there's this place where two disciples, they're walking down this road and Jesus, like, appears to them. Well, he's with them, he's walking with them, and he starts talking about Scripture. And then later, these disciples look back at this moment and they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the Scriptures with us? And it was that, that thing, like a burning heart, that caused these disciples, all of them, to give their life for the Christian movement. Something that they had, something that they had found, stirred something in them to where they lived completely with like, like, whatever is coming at me, I don't care. I am free from all fear, and I will face whatever before me for the sake of my Savior Christ. So whoever stands in front of me might know him and be known by him. Their very bones caught on fire. They stirred with a passion. They couldn't help it. Today, we're going to see that these men became those type of men because of their shame, plus their faith, which made them into men of prayer, and prayer changed them, changed them into something altogether different. And we're going to contrast these disciples with Judas, the betrayer, who ran right into his shame. He didn't know what to do with it. It overwhelmed him. And it led him to the rope. So we're in Acts 1, verses 12 through 20. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. 
a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, not the Judas the betrayer, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. A little bit of time passes, and it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. All right, first Peter. We're going to look at Peter. He moves from the denier to a leader. How is Peter now carrying this torch of leadership? Peter is the one who denied Jesus three times. The story goes like this. Jesus warns Peter, you're going to deny me. Three times, and then the rooster is going to crow. And Peter says, no way. I will go with you to my own death. But when it came down to it, Peter denied him not once, not twice, but three times. Now, I want you to put, your, put yourself in Peter's place. Jesus is his hero. Jesus has become Peter's like everything. Peter is ready to follow this man to the ends of the earth. I mean, put yourself in this place. This is Jesus. Like, there is no one who has ever been like this man. And Peter and you, if you're in his place, you want to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Follow him wherever he goes. And so then Jesus is arrested. And then Peter follows along behind. And he goes into this courtyard. And he peers in as Jesus is being mocked. And ridiculed. He's being slapped around. Literally, the Son of God is being slapped. And Peter is watching this all happen. And then someone comes up to Peter and says, Aren't you one of his followers? Peter says, No, no, no. No, that's not me. A little bit of time goes by. Someone else says, Hey, you're one of his followers, right? No. Well, your accent sounds like you are. Are you sure? No, no, no. It's not me. It's not me. And then one more time, someone comes and says, you follow him, don't you? You're one of his disciples. No, I'm not. And as soon as that happens, he looks again from the courtyard into this room, and he sees Jesus struck. Jesus' face lifts, and he locks eyes with Peter as if to say, I told you this was going to happen. And then immediately the rooster crows. Nature's loudest alarm system telling you to wake up, come out of the darkness. The dawn has come. Open your eyes. Come into the light. 
Don't deny him any longer. All right, fast forward. Jesus is now risen, and he's hanging out on the beach. And Peter is fishing, and he sees him on the beach. Peter jumps into the water, swims up to the beach, runs up to Jesus, and Jesus asks him three times a question. Now, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Here's what Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? What Jesus has just done is reversed his denial. In order for Peter to have received this reversal, he had to go running to Jesus. Now, let's put ourselves back in Peter's flighty feet and feel what it would feel like to be Peter. So all of his greatest, like, he feels so much shame for what he's done. And he looks at Jesus, and you know, he doesn't delay. He just runs right up into his arms, runs right through the shame to Jesus. It requires us running through our shame right into his arms to be able to experience grace. It would be very easy for him to run away. Be very easy. I'm wondering if some of us in this room might have just run away. To do what Adam and Eve did, hide from God. Humanity's greatest tragedy is not just our sin, but this propensity in us to run from God because we don't actually believe he's going to respond favorably if we come to him after we have sinned. He will. It's a cost that he will have to pay. Every time you're forgiven, it's because Jesus has paid the cost. So there is a cost involved. But it's paid. To run from God is a fundamental lack of belief in his grace and mercy. There's a prideful tendency within humanity to say, I've got this, God. I'm going to clean myself up a bit before I come to you. I'm going to put myself through a bit of my own suffering. And if I suffer enough, then just maybe you'll let me come into your presence. If I torment myself enough, if I put myself through hell, sitting in this shame long enough, then maybe you will love me. That is not how Christianity works. And it's incredibly prideful of us to think that it would work that way. This is alive from the fires of hell. And the answer is, the rooster is crowing, come out of the darkness and into the light. Wake up. There is only one requirement for grace. Trust that he will be gracious. And I'm not even talking about perfect trust. If you fear flying but get on a plane, you reach the same destination as everybody else who is very comfortable flying. Like their faith was strong. Like, yeah, we're going to get there. I'm going to have fun on this flight. Same destination. Just have enough hope and enough faith to get to him. He's going to sort out the rest. And soon, you go to him enough, you start being like Peter, who just runs right through his shame, right up into his arms. 
And do you know what Jesus tells Peter? Once the reversal, the denial is reversed. Well, he's doing it all through. He, he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. What's going on here? Well, Peter has failed epically. And he has now just received an epic grace, which prepares him to take on this leadership torch. It seems that if you read through the Bible, there is a requirement for leadership. It's, it's an epic awareness of your own failure and then a discovery of the beauty of grace. And then those are the ones who are prepared to lead. Those are the ones who are prepared to lead their family. Those are the ones who are prepared to lead their businesses. Those are the ones who are prepared to lead a city, a church, or wherever. You, take Judas. Not Judas, Judah. So Judah is the line through which we see Jesus born, the bloodline. So at the end of Genesis, let me say this. Let me see if I can say this quick where you understand it. So at the end of Genesis, everybody's waiting for, for the blessing to come to one of the sons of Israel. Who's it going to be? Everyone's expecting it to be Joseph. Joseph was like this guy who was thrown into slavery, though he didn't deserve it, but he handled it like a champ. Everyone's expecting Joseph. Joseph's family, but instead, the blessing is turned to Judah. Why? Judah was a mess. He did some really shady things, but towards the end of his life, he was transformed by grace. And that was the requirement for leadership, at least in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God, he trusts the people the most who have, well, they've seen their sin. And they have found grace. That is why Peter is the leader. And you've got to learn to look at your shame and not let it make you run from God, but run to him. Otherwise, you have the same end as Judas, not Judah, but Judas. This is our second point, Judas the betrayer. There's a lot of debate about Judas. Like, it was said, in, we read the verses, it was said in the Old Testament that there will be a betrayer. So the question is, did Judas have a choice in betraying God, or just was it simply his destiny? And the answer is that both are true. He willingly chose what he was destined to choose. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you or you have a hard time understanding it, welcome to the world of the Bible. We have an infinitely wise God who's communicating to us. So don't be surprised if our finite minds can't understand it. What, he, here's all you need to do. You need to say to yourself, well, what does that mean for me? Well, if both are true, then you live like both are true. God is 100% in control. And you are responsible for every single choice that you make. Judas's choice after he betrayed Jesus was not to seek him and ask for forgiveness, but to run to the finish line of shame. Shame became Judas's guide, and it led him right to a noose, right to a rope that he hung from. That's the story. So the story of Judas goes like this. Judas was very trusted of the disciples. Did you know that? He was the one who handled all the money. And you might say, oh, well, does that mean money corrupts? No. It's trying to show how trusted Judas was. 
But when it came down to it, he betrayed Jesus, not for some romantic love interest. He betrayed Jesus, not because he had a friend who someone was holding a knife to their throat saying, give us Jesus or we kill your friend. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The ultimate betrayal. And then history is not quite clear, but it seems that the shame that he felt for what he had done caused him to hate the money that was in his hands. And so he threw it down at the feet of the religious leaders. And they said, no, we don't want this. That's blood money. We don't want anything to do with this. And he said, well, I'm not taking it. And so they bought a field in his name and it became Judas's. And then Judas' shame kept haunting him until finally he went into this field or this meadow that is called a field of blood or death's meadow or something like this. And he went running there, and the shame ended with a noose around his neck, put there himself. And then he falls to the earth at some point, and his insides just spill out. Your shame has two endings. It either ends with the grace of Christ... Or it ends with a field of blood that you have bought with your own sin. Your own denial, your own betrayal of the Savior. Shame plus faithlessness equals the rope. Shame plus faithfulness equals prayer. Prayer that begins to change you. Prayer that leads you to running into the arms of Christ. You're either wrapped tight around, your neck is either like he's holding you in his arms or a rope is holding you. Don't let shame bring you to the rope but to Christ. And, and the question we have to ask is, what would have happened to Judas if he went to Christ and pleaded for forgiveness, pleaded for mercy? What would happen to him? you read through the Bible, the evidence is pretty clear. He would have received grace. But it was his destiny to reject it. And so he chose to reject grace. He chose shame. Look, if, if, if you're living your life with shame and it's defining like you, you're rejecting grace. And the reason you're rejecting grace is because you don't think it's there. Or you don't think you deserve it, which you don't. But you're not willing to just take it. And it's available. And God wants you to take it. Like, he's, he's saying, take the grace. It's here. Like, I didn't come to die and give my life so you could just look at grace from a distance. Go into it. Bathe in it. Blanket it over you. Don't let the rope be your end. Don't run. Grace is the beginning of prayer. It, because you think about this. If you can't go to him through your shame, you're never really going to go to him. Because as soon as you start walking into the presence of God, you know what you're going to be thinking about? All the stuff that you have done wrong. 
And so you're going to need something from him. You need help from him. You're going to want something from him. But you're never going to get to say that, actually, with a whole heart. Because every time you come into his presence, you're going to be holding back. You're not going to go all the way in because the feeling of sin and shame together in the presence of God without hearing these words, you are forgiven, will make you want to run from him. So if you're having a hard time right after you sin, running into his arms, you have to think through, do you really get it? Like, is grace really something that you have understood? Because if it's not, you're going to just be sitting, like, just at a safe distance from him. Which means you're never going to know him. You're never going to experience the love that he has to offer. You're just going to hear about it from all of your friends and say, oh, that sounds super nice. I think I'm experiencing that, but I don't know. Just go, just like, just be done, like, with the game. And just go all in. Risk it all. I bet there's a lot of us who are still hiding from God even though we're praying. Maybe we're praying daily but still hiding from him. Go to him and he makes you into a leader like Peter. He makes you like the other disciples. He makes you wise warriors for the kingdom. Our third point, we're going to look at all these disciples. Look at what happens to them after they work through their shame of like they all left him they work through it all they're in and they devote themselves to prayer and then the rest of their life well what's what's their end well they give their life for the mission they die prayer is dangerous prayer is an invitation for you to come and die to die to yourself to come alive again in Christ. Like for every Christian, there are two kinds of deaths and resurrection. The one kind is you go to God daily and you're dying to yourself. You're dying to your selfishness. You're dying to like you and your kingdom and you're coming alive again in the kingdom of God. You're coming alive again to live for him. You're coming alive into his glory and in his love and in his grace. And you say, wow, I got to live for you, not because I have to, but because I want to. Death resurrection and then there's the bigger death the physical death and then you enter into this beautiful ecstasy of glory every christian experiences both of those things and when you experience it it turns you into a force that changes the world around you because now you don't live in fear and it's not that you're saying, I refuse to live with fear. Like the fear is gone. And the person who is most equipped to hear this phrase I'm going to say is the one who is living without any fear. Here's the question. What will you do with the time that you have left? Like on your gravestone. You have the birth date and the death date, but then there's this line in between. What will you do? The person who lives without fear, without shame, without like anything holding them back, that's the one who has had a life that is well lived. You don't get to choose who you are born to, where you are born, when you are born. But you do have a decision to make. What will you do? with the time that you have left. 
prayer is what prepared the disciples for their purpose. You just want to live a good life. But you're scared to approach God like all the way in prayer. You've got your aim. Like there's a good life. But you can't seem to get there because you're not really praying. Like you're still holding back to him. Holding back from him. Every disciple here died for the cause of Christ except for one, John. Every one of these disciples lived more in their short life than probably any of us could in 100 years. Prayer prepared them to do that. Faith plus shame equals prayer. Fully devoted prayer, like, like devotion in your prayer. And then it makes you be someone who changes the world. For the disciples, this fire grew in them because they felt the shame, like they abandoned him. They felt the shame of it. But then they found grace, and it kindled a fire in them that made them look around at the world around them that was running to the noose, that was running to the rope. And they said, we got to do something about this. Shame is controlling the people in our lives. Shame is controlling the people in our world, and we've got a remedy for it. What are we going to do with this information? Well, we're going to tell everyone. We're going to tell everyone even if it costs us our life. They looked out at the world, and they saw a bloody meadow. And so they stood in front of it and invited people to go into the tight arms of Christ instead of the tightrope. And it cost them all their lives. These disciples, I mean, we know some of them had families. Yet they lived for Christ. Because they knew that God could take better care of their families if they were gone than they could themselves if they were there. Thank you. Let's look at these disciples. If you like history, you're going to love this part. If you don't like history, I'll wake you up when it's over. Peter and Paul. They both were martyred around 66 A.D. in Rome during persecution under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded, and Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't think himself worthy to die the same way his Savior had died. Andrew went to the land of the meat eaters, now what we call the Soviet Union. And he also preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and Greece, and there he was crucified. Thomas, tradition has him going as far east as India. And then there's this little sect of a Christian church there that revere him as their founder. And he was pierced there by four soldiers, pierced him right through. Philip, he had a ministry in North Africa and Asia Minor where he converted the wife of the Roman proconsul. And then in retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested. And cruelly put to death. Matthew ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports say that he was not martyred. That then others said he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew traveled through India with Thomas and then back to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. And there are various accounts of his martyrdom. James, the Jewish historian Josephus, says that he was reported to be stoned and clubbed to death. 
Simon the zealot was in Persia, and he was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, he's the apostle that replaced Judas. He went to Syria with Andrew, and he was put to death by burning. John is the only one who is said to have lived and died at an old age. What caused these men to die for this cause? The fire of love and grace. It was like the the balm that healed their shame. It turned them into men who fought for peace in a world that was at war against them so that the world that they fought fought against and fought against them could find peace. They fought for their enemies because they realized they were an enemy of God and he fought for them. They stood in front of the rope and begged the world not to use it. All right. Okay, that's good. What does that mean for you besides you have this inspiring story? Well, it means you have a choice. There are people around you who are filled with shame. In this room, outside of this room, and you have the healing balm. Will you offer it to them? It's going to cost you a lot if you do. And this is where I'm supposed to convince you of all the logical reasons why you should engage in mission. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you just to pray and let God convince you to go through shame, walk right through it right into the arms of your Savior who loves you, who bled for you, who died for you, who forgives. Walk right past the rope to him. You're going to know what to do from there. Last point, the rope. You're going to know what to do from there because he is the one who chose the rope of the cross in your place. Your shame is gone because he wore your shame on the cross. He was buried in death's bloody meadow so that you could be put on the green pastures. And he rose and he brought out upon a new day. The rooster is now crowing, calling you to open your eyes, to wake up, to come out of the darkness of shame and into the light of forgiveness beauty and truth and love and mercy that just pour down upon you over and over and over again. It's a never-ending well that's just constantly washing you. Christian and skeptic alike, just go to him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will heal your shame, and he will put you in a glorious, beautiful field. And then you'll get it. Then you won't be able to help it. You'll see people with shame, and you'll have to do something. It will sound like that. Well, it will look like that. But seriously, that is how we run from God. It's a tragedy. Like the the sound of someone crying and then the, the, the sound getting fainter and fainter and fainter. Because they're getting further and further and further away from God. And you can do something about it. Let's pray.
God, in your sweet mercy and goodness, you have not let us wallow around in shame. You have not let us be victims of our own selves. You have not let our sin define us. You have not let our past own us. You have made a good way. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.